0: Racial profiling complaints against police in Quebec go nowhere. StatsCan has released data that shows that black people are more likely to die of HIV AIDS and various cancers than white people. A significant drop in the number of people getting citizenship in Canada, and Scotland's Nicola Sturgeon resigns. Good morning. It's Thursday, February 16th. I'm Nora, and here are your headlines. We start this morning with an investigation out of CBC Montreal. Reporters Benjamin Shingler and Leah Hendry have found that very few complaints about racial profiling Quebec actually make it to the Police Ethics Committee. The two journalists looked at the data over five years. They found that on average, the Police Ethics Commission in Quebec received 156 racial profiling complaints every year over the past five years. This comprises 7% of all complaints that they've received. Of the total 780 complaints that were received over five years, only 11 actually made it to the Police Ethics Committee, and only four resulted in a police officer being disciplined. You can see why we're not using percentages here, as the numbers are so low. The two journalists mentioned that more than half of the complaints involved the Montreal police. The harshest sentence that was given out? Just 30 days without pay for racial profiling, and that officer got an additional 10 days for brutality. Henry and Shingler mentioned that the case that resulted in this 30-day punishment involved Errol Burke, a 57-year-old man who police slammed to the ground while he was going to buy milk at a depenard. The man they said that they were looking for was 18, and the police mistook Mr. Burke for that man. I mean, that's what they said. Both men are black. The article talks with advocates and lawyers who all say that the system is broken. The article says that they could not get interviews with either the Police Ethics Office or the office of François Bonardel, the Minister of Public Security. And now, a new report from Statistics Canada. It has found that Black men are more likely than white men to die from HIV-AIDS, prostate cancer, diabetes mellitus, and cerebrovascular diseases, while Black women, when compared to white women are at an increased risk of dying from HIV-AIDS, stomach cancer, corpus uteri cancer, lymphomas, multiple myeloma, diabetes mellitus, and endocrine disorders. Where the increased risk to black men dying from HIV-AIDS was 2.37 times higher, that's more than double that of white men, black women had a stunning 6.5 times higher risk of dying from HIV-AIDS than white women. An article from Heidi Lee from Global News quotes the report, which says that these differences could be caused by, quote, health inequities, differential antiretroviral therapy adherence, and treatment delays. The analysis was based on census data that followed people through the 2001, 2006, 2011 censuses, and then until the end of 2019. The report notes, quote, in Canada, not all sources of health data collect information on racialized identities. Because of this, health indicators such as disease prevalence, hospitalizations, cancer incidence, and mortality are incomplete, including for Black individuals. Unquote. This is a systemic issue. There is not enough data collected in general, and there is absolutely not enough race-based data collected. And so these numbers, while they give an indication, they'll never tell the whole story because of the refusal of different health agencies of Canada to collect the data. The report authors note that, to their knowledge, this was the first report of its kind ever to be done in Canada. One more story for you that is related to StatsCan data Numbers released yesterday show that the number of people who moved from permanent resident status to Canadian citizen has dropped by 40% since 2001. That is stunning, if you think about it. Dropped by 40%. Christian Collington from the Canadian Press reports that in 2021, only 45% of permanent residents who'd been in Canada for less than 10 years became citizens. To compare... With other years, in 2016, that number was 60%, and in 2001, that number was 75%. So the drop has been from 75% to 45% in 20 years. The story, as it appears at CTV News, is very thin. Collington quotes Daniel Bernhard, the CEO of the Institute for Canadian Citizenship, who explains the drop as being due to, quote, a myriad of reasons, unquote, including the cost of living and job prospects, and that, quote, people have decided they're less interested in being, quote, Team Canada, unquote. double quote. I didn't have time to look at all the changes to citizenship that have happened since 2001 that might be impacting this, but I can't believe that is being driven by individual choices of not wanting to be part of Team Canada, or frankly, even related to just inflation and job prospects. When I searched, quote, has it become harder to become a Canadian citizen, unquote, the first thing that popped up is an episode of the defunct CBC radio show, The 180, that was called, quote, should it be harder to become a Canadian citizen? The episode is from nine years ago, and it features, quote, an immigrant and new citizen himself, unquote, someone they don't name, but say that he, quote, applauds the proposed changes to the Citizenship Act. Find out why he says it should be harder to become a Canadian citizen, The show focused on Harper era changes, which extended the amount of time that people had to live in Canada before applying for citizenship. It also changed how much you have to pay to become a citizenship, increasing the rates, and made changes to the citizenship test. Annoyingly, the Canadian Press article doesn't mention any of this, instead, suggesting alone that it is the individual permanent residence's fault for not deciding to finish the process. This news is not surprising. It has been previously reported. For example, in 2018, the Toronto Star's Nicholas Kung reported that the citizenship rate dropped after these Harper-era changes were brought in. So, incomplete story this morning from the Canadian press and an extremely important story considering both the crisis that we have of people seeking asylum in Canada and not being processed fast enough or given the supports that they need to be able to settle here. Finally, to Scotland, where Nicola Sturgeon has resigned as Scotland's first minister. The National, a Scottish newspaper, was, of course, all over the resignation, but one article in particular focused on how much Scotland's queer community will miss Sturgeon. In December, her government passed the Gender Recognition Reform Bill, a bill that made it easier for Scots to legally change their gender. Scotland's gender recognition reform bill was actually blocked by the government of the UK. They invoked something called a Section 35 order. Now, why they did this is a combination of conservatives being conservatives, but also the trans panic that is being pushed by gender fascists in the United Kingdom. When the Scottish Parliament asked for more detail from the UK government of what needed to change about the bill, they never got a clear answer. Sturgeon was resolute in her support for the bill. The national reports of the leading candidate to replace Sturgeon, Kate Forbes, is on the record as being opposed to the gender recognition reform bill. She also has a lot of other questionable positions that would put her into the right wing camp. The article by Ross Hunter concludes with this quote. I think it's a sad day for Scotland that such an immensely capable politician, so across her brief and source of stability and reassurance in frankly bewildering, turbulent, and toxic times, feels the need to step back from leading our country, says comedian Scott Agnew. He continues, It's a particularly sad day for LGBTQ people in Scotland. Nicola Sturgeon has been the architect of a more inclusive and progressive Scottish national party, Scottish government, and wider independence movement. I'd hope that would continue under the new leader and that any drift to the right would be resisted by the party. LGBTQ people will not forget the loss of such a tireless champion so easily, Sturgeon's resignation is being compared to Jacinta Ardern's resignation in New New Zealand. It's come out of nowhere, but it hasn't been triggered by nothing. Lots of media are citing Sturgeon's reasons for resigning as being necessary for her own mental health and well-being. Her party, the Scottish National Party, has been on the ascent in the past number of years, but this has been stymied recently by growing unpopularity and difficulties in dealing with the UK government, of course, and her party's dream of an independent Scotland. Any independence party is going to be demonized and have a very tough hill to climb. Sturgeon was a wonderful leader, and I personally am pretty sad to see her go. Good luck to the folks of Scotland and the independentists in the Scottish National Party as you find someone who hopefully comes close to the caliber of sturgeon to lead your movement. That's your news for Thursday, February 16th. I'm Nora. I hope you have a good day.